So if you would this morning open uh, to the Word of God, to John's Gospel in chapter 2. This morning we're going to look at the text from uh, verses 12 through 25. And before we do, let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are holy and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We thank you this morning for your mercy toward us. We thank you for your loving kindness that gives us access to you by your Son and through your word. We confess our failure, Lord, sometimes to come to you according to your prescription. We ask for your mercy and plead the blood of Jesus Christ as our defense, and it is our only defense this morning. We need your grace to hear and to do according to your holy word this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let us begin in verse 12, and we will go through the end of chapter 2. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the holy word of the Lord. Amen. So, for God to accept worship from rebellious, fallen, stiff-necked, hard-hearted sinners is a great gift of God's amazing grace. God owes no one access to Him. God owes no one access to His grace. To be granted access to His holy presence is a treasure. It is a treasure that is given to the people of God by His choosing. And because He is a benevolent and a merciful God. And since God is the object of worship, guess what? God is holy. God is separate. God is holy other than the creatures that He created. Since that is true of God, and God is the object of our worship, then God has the right to command how He is worshipped, where He is worshipped, and from whom worship is accepted. Because it is all according to His divine prerogative. God commands worship to be pure. Pure in its content, pure in its motivation, pure in its person, and pure in its heart. So I have titled this morning's message, The Heart of Worship, and we're going to see that this morning. While the church 
each day, each time we gather, we should put our best efforts forward to conduct our worship services in a way that is helpful to the members, a, a way in which it removes obstacles for the visitor. But I praise God that God-pleasing worship is not about the pastor's ability, the music leader's giftedness, or the atmosphere of the venue. That is the truth, right? That it is not about the pastor's ability. It's not about the music leader's giftedness. And it's not about the atmosphere of where we gather. So I would ask you this question. And these are things that come to me. So, uh, And none of you are guilty of the things I'm going to say. But other people have said these things to me. Why do confessing Christians say things to me like this? I'm going to go to another church... Because I don't need to be told every other week that I am in a sinner in need of a Savior. Or XYZ has a more relaxed liturgy than you. Or ABC has more instruments in their worship. Or your church emphasizes uh, the Scripture and LMNOP Church uh, emphasizes community outreach. Your church has too much Bible. These are all things that have been said to me, by the way. Worship that is all about us. Worship that is all about us leads to two things. It leads to one, we become flimsy-hearted and remove all order and structure, and we become antinomian, which is we throw out the law. We don't obey the law of God, the moral law of God. We throw it all out. We become flimsy-hearted, and we remove all order and all structure. Or... Two, we become hard-hearted and we put way too many obstacles in the way. Uh, we have our own traditions and those get in the way and we become legalists. One of two things happen when we make worship all about us. Well, today I hope to show in our passage that right doctrine and right practice are not mutually exclusive and that right doctrine, rightly practice, is worship that is according to the heart of God from the right-hearted believer in Jesus Christ, who himself is the heart of worship. God-pleasing worship is according to God's word, through God's Son, by those of God's choosing. I want us to get that. This is what, I could, if you could sum up this passage, this is what it is. God-pleasing worship is according to God's word, through God's Son, by those of God's choosing. From the beginning, God has commanded worship to be according to His will. Remember the sons of Adam in Genesis 4? Cain brought worship to God that was rejected, and Abel brought worship in the right way from the right heart, and it was acceptable to the Lord. Or maybe you can think of the sons of Aaron in Leviticus chapter 10, how uh, Nadab and Abihu brought unauthorized fire before the Lord, and they themselves got consumed by the fire of the Lord. God prescribes worship in His way. Turn with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And I know we are in the Gospel of John, but we want to get, I want to get, I'm going to take a while to get us here, because I want us to see what drives us to the point of Jesus coming into the temple. Okay? So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. And we will look at verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt." You see, God in His sovereign grace and His benevolent mercy chose a people out of the earth to worship Him in love, to set them apart for His glory because of His love, and to be present with His people. As a gift of continuing grace, if we, I don't want to preach the whole Bible, but I want to get us to, to this point. As a gift of continuing grace, you see, God was present with His people in a, in a pillar of smoke by day, in a pillar of fire by night. Uh, he was present with them in the Ark of the Covenant and in the Tabernacle of Meeting. You see, it has progressed. And finally, God inspired Solomon to build a temple for the glory of God. And he built this temple, a house for the glory of God. God prescribed the temple's physical structure, and he prescribed how the people were to worship him. Okay? So, as time goes on, things go awry, don't they? Ezekiel twenty two twenty six describes a pretty decent summary of how Israel treated the temple of God. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the common, neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. It's a pretty good summary of what is going on here in the temple. Now turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. In Malachi chapter 2, we will begin in verse 10. Have we, all, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant." Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was, the, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The point I'm getting to is going to be in chapter 3 here. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying everyone who does, who, who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand when He appears? For He is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former days. 
years. See, as we look at this, the prophet here, he tells of a time when one would come and purify the people and reform the temple from the profane to the holy. Right worship the right way must be expressed properly to please the heart of God. So this coming of Jesus into the temple, this is where we pick up in our text in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus has come to the temple near the time of the Passover. Jesus being the one that the prophet Malachi was foretelling of. The one who is the refiner. Who's coming in to refine things, to reform things, to change things. Here we see the right thing happening though in the wrong place. The right thing was happening in the wrong place and for the wrong reasons. At Passover, many Jews and converts to Judaism would travel many, many uh, miles and from many different nations to partake of the Passover celebration. And Passover was to be a time, right, where the people would celebrate the glory of God in remembrance of their delivery from slavery to Pharaoh. These folks would bring animals for sacrifice, and every male who was 20 years or older was required to pay a temple tax, the money changers were necessary since the temple tax had to be paid in the Tyrrhenian coin or the temple coin because it was of a purer silver. So 300,000 to 400,000 Jews from many nations would come at the time of Passover. And these money changers, the problem is, is that they were set up in the court of the Gentiles. They were blocking access to worship. They were in the wrong place. They were doing the right thing, but they were also doing it in the wrong way. Not only was, was commerce being conducted in the wrong places, but those who needed to exchange coins or to have a proper animal sacrifices were being extorted. The, the exchange rate was exorbitant. And, you know, some uh, historians say that they would bring, say, a sheep, right? And they bring this sheep as a sacrifice. And then they'd have a pin inside this this temple area full of sheep that were approved. So they would bring this sheep and they would say, you know, we're going to bring this to sacrifice on the Passover. And the guy sitting there would say, ah, sorry, but your sheep isn't good enough. But I can sell you one of ours. And then, of course, he would take this guy's sheep that was with blemish and put it in the cage with everybody else. Then the next guy comes and he's bringing his sheep and he says, Oh, I'm sorry, that sheep isn't good. But the one he just took that he said was no good, he sold to the next guy and said, here you go. So these guys were just grafting people and they were, they were, they were uh, being sinful and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they were um, blocking the house of God from worship. And so they often were also taking advantage of the most disadvantaged people, right? So... Women were being extorted for the right dove and those kinds of things. So they were just taking advantage of people um, in the wrong way. So here comes Jesus, born for the glory of God, by the will of God, 
to live and worship the Father to the glory of God alone and according to His will of God. Here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus, who is the one of whom Malachi said, He's coming. He will come as a refiner and a purifier, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them so that they will once again bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. That worship would be be conducted now according to the will of God and for the glory of God. Jesus comes and He tells these money changers, get the profane out of the house of God. With zealous passion for God's glory and His Father's will, Jesus in essence says, repent and get back to the heart of worship. What you're doing is wrong. The temple of God is not a commercial marketplace. The temple of God is not an entertainment center. When the disciples reflect backwards at this event, they remembered the words of the psalmist in Psalm 69, zeal for God's glory according to God's will will drive the powers that be to kill me. Is basically what he says here, right? That glory for God's house, that is what will consume me. Glory for for acting in accordance with the will of God. Glory, and and, and my will is to do His will, right? Is to live according to the Scriptures and to worship according to those Scriptures. And for that, I will be killed. Do you think about our own salvation that way? Do we have such a zeal and such a passion for God's will and His glory? Knowing that we could be killed. At least, if not killed, at least marginalized, right? At least pushed aside. But there are various means with which the church may use to worship God, but there's only one principle and there's only one end. I want us to get this. There's various means, various means by which we put together worship, but, but it's all underneath one principle and one end. And the principle for right worship is according to the will of of the Father. The will of the Father is found on the pages of the Holy Scripture. Therefore, the only right worship is that which finds its prescription in the Word of God. To add anything else to the Scripture, to our order of worship, to that which guides our worship, to add anything else is to bring the same strange fire of Nadab and Abihu is to bring something foreign to the table. And the only end of right worship is that which is centered on the glory of God. See, worship is not about, and church attendance, I'm going to give you this, and you guys are, you know, I might be preaching to the choir here because here we are on this cold floor in a cold warehouse. But to tell you the truth, that um, worship and gathering together, it's not about your comfort, friends. It's not about your comfort. It's not about my comfort. It is not about making worship conform to societal trends. It's not even about meeting up with your friends, necessarily. It happens. It's definitely not about attracting a crowd. The heart of worship in the church is the glory of God and according to the will of God. Therefore, we must worship in the church with the Word of God as the regulating principle. The Word of God is the regulating principle for worship if we desire to worship according to the will of God. If that is our desire, then the Word of God is our regulating principle. You see, a pastor who is zealous for such worship may find himself 
consumed by such passion. Church attendance may shrink. He may get fired and run out of the church, as many principled men before me already have. But the church must not compromise this principle if the church is to worship God in a God-pleasing way. Right worship, the right way, must be embodied. And it is embodied in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right worship is about the embodiment of the glory of God according to the gospel of God, in the person of Jesus, in the transforming work of Jesus Christ's death and in God's resurrection of Him from the grave. There is no way to offer the Father right worship outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's only one way to offer God heart-pleasing worship, and that is through the sacrificed body of the perfect Lamb, Jesus Christ. Let us move forward in verse 18. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show for, uh, to, to us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. We see the Sanhedrin, that is the Jewish leadership, are taken aback by the zealous passion of Jesus, and they pose a question, what sign do you show us for doing these things? I was wondered why Jesus did not answer, because he could have answered this. He could have answered this. Have you not read the prophet Malachi? Have you not read the, the prophet Malachi who told of the one who would come and the one who would come and, and reform and refine and purify worship that glorifies God and that which is according to his will? I've shown you this sign. You just saw it. You just saw the sign. But he didn't say that. He didn't say that. Jesus answers, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Because of my zeal for the glory of the Father, the Father's will is that you will destroy me. Because of my desire to do God's will, because of my passion for His glory, you will destroy me. But to the glory of God, death cannot hold me, and the Father will raise me up from the dead. I then will be the embodiment of the temple. I will be the embodiment of right-hearted worship according to God's will. All of that will be through me by grace, through faith in me. Of course, we notice from the passage that immediately neither the Sanhedrin nor the disciples had divine revelation of this reality. Neither of them have divine revelation of this reality. Of course, you know, the Sanhedrin think that he's talking about a physical building, and it is only until uh, Jesus is resurrected that these disciples of his remembered what he did and what he said. And then they believed the words that he proclaimed there. Then they believed them. That it is about the resurrection. They believed the scriptures and they believed the words that Jesus had spoke to the Sanhedrin after he was resurrected. But in this moment, they didn't know. They didn't know exactly what he meant. Well, the heart of worship is the glory of God according to the will of God. The heart of worship is embodied in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and according to the will of God, to the glory of God.
Verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Again, another piece of the heart of worship is the heart of worship is all of sovereign grace. All of sovereign grace. The will of God, the glory of God, the embodiment of worship is divinely revealed according to God's sovereign grace. And see, many who were present here at this Passover celebration, they believed in Jesus because of the signs that He performed there. They apprehended Jesus in their minds, and they missed the glory behind the sign. See, Jesus here is talking about this. Nobody needed to confess who these people were because He knew the hearts of men. No mere confession will reveal whether or not you be in the faith. Merely confessing Jesus will not reveal whether you are in the faith necessarily. No one testifying on your behalf can assure you of your salvation because Jesus knows the heart of people. Jesus knows the hearts of men. Jesus knows those that are His. Jesus knows those who have rejected Him. See, Right-hearted worship comes by way of divine revelation. By divine revelation, according to God's sovereign will and according to God's electing grace. You see, you and I cannot conjure up right-hearted worship any more than you can will yourselves to believe, any more than you can will yourselves to be saved. You cannot conjure up right-hearted worship. Worship from, from a faithful heart is all of God's grace. It is an act of God's grace seizing the will. My will had to be seized to worship Him. He had to seize me because I was trapped, and so were you, enslaved to sin. God's grace is seizing. It is capturing and grabbing you. It is God's will on you. It is taking you from death to life. It is freeing you from slavery and freeing you to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship from a faithful heart is an act of God's grace, seizing the will from slavery of sin and then enabling the heart to believe. And all of that is by God's sovereign choice. As I have said many times, and I'm going to say it again this morning, the heart of the human problem is a problem of the human heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And in Paul's letter to the Romans in verses uh, 10 and 11 of chapter 3, uh, no, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And then in chapter 9, verses 16 through 18, it says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he ever he wills, and he hardens whomever, who, whomever he wills. See, Jesus knows the human condition, and he cannot be fooled by a confession. You cannot fool Jesus by walking up and signing a prayer card at the end of an evangelistic uh, event. You cannot fool Jesus. He knows your heart. And there is no act that you and I can perform that will overcome the depravity of our own hearts. 
There is no amount of church attendance, Bible reading, or praise lifting that will overcome the problem of the human heart. None of it will help you one bit because salvation comes by grace. It comes by grace alone. It comes through faith alone. It comes in Christ alone. And all of it is to the glory of God alone. See, by grace, because of mercy, God has made the way for sinners to worship Him aright. The temple of God, Jesus Christ, became a human like us. He died for His people who were trapped and enslaved to sin. Freeing Himself from death, Jesus offers new life by faith that He gives to your heart, that Christ died for your sin, and by confessing with your mouth that God raised Him from the dead. Do you see this morning the glory behind the sign? Will you repent and believe today? Will those of us who by grace have been saved plead with me this morning and along with me this morning that God will forgive us for coming to worship with the wrong motives and sometimes coming in the wrong way? Will you pray with me that God would grant us grace to return to the heart of worship? Let us pray. Father, help us express properly your will and your glory. Give us grace to center our worship on the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us grace to see the embodiment of your temple in his person. And may Jesus be the place of our worship that comes from the heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. will of the Father to his praise and his glory. But we need your grace. We need your mercy and your strength. And we thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to be our helper in those things. We ask, Lord, that you would do that work in us. In Jesus' precious name, amen.